Take your Bibles, turn to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea 12. We are in a section of our book in Hosea where he is reaching back into their history of Israel and drawing parallels from the life of Jacob. We know that Jacob strove with his brother, with an angel. We know that uh, he was depicted as a man who devised his own plans for success. He also wept in repentance at Bethel. This is where God met him. Jacob was a lot like us, certainly a lot like Israel. His life was a mixed bag, right? I mean, there was deception, there was infighting, and yet he also at times exhibited a heart yearning for the Lord. Now, the truth is, many of you may not want to admit this, but the truth is none of us always live a life that's nothing but joy. None of us do that. Always victory, always answered prayer. We are a mixed bag. Some Christian cultures want to present a Christian life other than that. It's always shiny, always victorious. In fact, we're told that's the way it always should be 24-7, and so then we walk out really defeated. Um, I suppose it appeals to some people because facing their circumstances and real internal struggles is just too difficult. Plus, it really doesn't make for a very good tweet. Um, so some people think living the victorious Christian life means faking it. Put on your plastic Christian smile, speak Christianese, and there you go. Everybody knows I'm doing great. But we know deep down inside it's fake, right? That was not Jesus. If Jesus was anything, he was real. And he was about messy ministry. He did messy healing. He would spit Mix it with mud and put it in somebody's eye. That's a messy healing. He did messy relationships. He would talk to prostitutes. He would have dinner with people that were the outcasts of society. Jesus did messy ministry. Doesn't mean he sinned, no. He always submitted to the Father. His script was written by the Heavenly Father, but he walks into our messy lives. So our passage is picked up here in Hosea 12, 9 through 14. And we're going to pray that God uses this to help us draw near to him in the midst of our messy lives. Let's all stand as we take a look at this passage. Those that really love Jesus will stay standing for the entire sermon, okay? <laughs> I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim was given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him 
and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Father, we admit there are some things here in Hosea that have been hard to understand. We just want to try to understand it through the power of your spirit. But more importantly, the things that you have for us that we can live as you have prescribed, as you have asked us. We do so willingly because we love you. Because we care about our relationship with you being the primary source of our being. So we come to you as honestly as we know how and pray that you'll do a work. Father, I know with a crowd this large, there's always going to be people who are struggling, maybe don't want to have anything to do with you. There are going to be people who have given up on a relationship with you. There will be others that are just confused. Would you take all of that, our messy lives, and help us to understand a little bit better how much you love us, how much you care for us, and what it really means to be in Christ and Christ in us. Do a supernatural work. We invite you to do that. Lord, we don't understand everything about your Holy Spirit. There are things we don't get. But one thing I do get, if you read the book of Acts and you read through the early church, Lord, I I don't want anything to hold us back. I don't want anything to get in the way of your Spirit moving freely in our life. So whatever that means for us today, for each and every person here, would you do it? We know it's going to start with great humility for each of us. So we just recognize how much we need you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Let's go ahead and have a seat. I am the Lord, your God, from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. It's almost like God has to reintroduce himself to Israel. Do you remember who I am? Do you remember what I've done? I am the Lord God. I have done almighty works and delivered you from Egypt, from Pharaoh. Yes, Israel deserves to be cast off forever based upon their disobedience to God. However, Yahweh is their covenant God. We've talked about this before. When we talk about that, we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant that was only God doing the covenant with Israel. It wasn't based on Israel's obedience. That was the Mosaic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant, God's making the deal. He's the only party to the covenant. Romans reminds us of this truth when it says that what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Whoa. I mean, did he just really say that? Could it actually be true that we would have this kind of God that would hold his end of the bargain regardless of what we do? Ugh, that just sounds too good to be true. 
doesn't it? That's certainly not the religious life most of us have learned from. Most of us have learned that if we do our part, God will be good to us. But this unmerited grace that God gives to us, we know little about that. Not Hardly any of us were raised that way, really understanding that. We learn, you know, tit for tat, right? I do my part, God will do his. But that he'll remain faithful when I'm unfaithful? Let me ask you this. Do you think God is surprised by your unfaithfulness? No. Clearly, God is not in a position to nullify salvation. The fact that humans are unfaithful to God hasn't been lost on God. He knew we'd sin, and yet he's faithful. I'm not saying we get away with sin. I'm not saying he doesn't do anything about the sin. I'm saying he still remains faithful. Remember, all of this started when the Israelites got out of Egypt and we learned something about God and we learned something about the Israelites. They had great intentions. They had made great promises. They experienced God in intimate ways. And this is what we read about what took place. This is out of Exodus 19. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. You hear their intention? Man, we're going to obey you, God. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. They did the religious stuff they needed to do to cleanse themselves. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet blast. Don't you think if God could just show himself like this, Man, then I'd follow him the rest of my life. Well, God did that for the Israelites. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They committed. They were religiously clean. They experienced supernatural manifestation. They experienced the presence of God. And then the record tells us, not long after this, they're making an idol. Wow. How soon they forgot. It's not like God was unclear about this, saying, you know what? I would just make a suggestion. You might, you know, this idol thing, you know, maybe just stay away. It's not like he was unequivocal or on it. He was actually not equivocating. He was unequivocal. This is what he said. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. It's so abhorrent to God. I don't, you want, don't even want you talking about it with one another, right? You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This was a severe offense to God. Couldn't have been any clearer. But they continued to disobey. In fact, some of the religious festivals that God had inaugurated, they had forgotten about. Here was one. 
As a reminder of this truth, God wants them to return to tents and appointed feasts. The word actually used for appointed feast is singular and refers to only one feast. What was that? It was the Feast of Tabernacle or booths. This was the annual week in which Israel honored the wilderness wandering by leaving their homes and spending a week in tents, right? No cable, no iPhone, just in tents. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. And your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. That was the thinking behind it. And now, by making this point in Hosea, the Lord is saying this discomfort that you felt being in booths, this is now going to be your permanent condition, Israel. You're going to be like homeless wanderers. You had this homeland that I gave you, but you completely went to idol worshiping. You're going to be disbanded now. You're going to be like your ancestors in bondage. And yet, God is still true to his covenant. He's still pursuing. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. God is reminding Israel that there are no excuses because prophets visions and parables have been used to warn them. But they were too stubborn to heed the prophets, the visions, the parables. Uh, One example of giving prophets was Elijah and Elisha. God gave them to Israel. A king of Israel, Ahab, you know what he called Elijah? The troubler of Israel. (laughs) Wow. In addition, he would have them, have given them uh, visions, messages through visions, real life uh, illustrations such as Hosea and Gomer's marriage. Remember, Gomer was a prostitute. Hosea had to marry her. And that was going to be a picture of God's relationship with Israel, they're always committing adultery, but I'm still loving you, still pursuing you. The point is, Israel could not blame God. He has remained faithful and has continuously pursued them through every possible means to turn back. And Israel has refused to repent. The messages from God were clear and they were often. Israel experienced the presence of God. There were thunder and thick clouds, loud trumpet blasts for the people to understand God was here, God was doing something. And what happened when Moses got back down the mountain that built a golden bull, an idol? See, I think there are many Christians today that think if they get some 
special manifestation from God, they're going to walk the line. Right? Many think if they only have, you know, this particular program or this kind of music, some kind of healing, their spiritual life will be transformed if God will only do this. Listen, the problem is not in the manifestation, but in people glorying in it instead of God himself. The problem is we replace God with the accoutrements of religious life. You know, when I love my wife, I don't need her to wear her best clothes and jewelry to love her. I just want to be with her. Now, it's not that a fancy dress and jewelry are wrong. The problem is when I don't want to be with her unless she has it all on. That's not love. The psalmist said this, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I like God, you know, as long as I have A, B, C, D, you know, right? That's the problem. And we all get that way, right? Israel's plight is demonstrated by the fact that the entire land, both the east represented by Gilead and the west represented by Gilgal, is full of idolatry. Now, we've already talked about the significance of these two places in the history of Israel, and particularly with uh, Jacob's travels. And now these two holy places where all this stuff went on with Jacob, they have become rife with idols. And when Assyria takes over, this is going to be turned into just stone. They are like heaps of rocks on the furrows of a field, meaning they are an impediment to finding God and not a means to him. Israel's religious perversions have produced a people that more resemble the idols than Jehovah. They are hollow, without substance, ineffective, worthless, and they've come to nothing. Can you imagine after all of your religious activity in a church, God says it's nothing but stones getting in the way. May God keep that from ever happening at CCC. That we are useless. That we're not effective. That we're not advancing the kingdom. That we think it's all about me. It's all about me being entertained. Instead of we are not our own, we are here as stewards of what God has given us. And my life is not mine to just use for my own pleasure but I'm here to serve the almighty God and for his glory. That's not just religious talk. I think that's where real life is found. Because when I, when I walk into a room and I think it's about me, all kinds of insecurities start, right? Is my zipper down? Am I too fat? You know, did I say the wrong thing? All these things because I'm self-absorbed, Right? But when it's about others, I'm loving, I'm serving, I give those things up. And many in the Christian life and many churches are self-absorbed. And we can be too. 
I'm not saying we're special and different from everybody else. I'm just saying it's a danger for any of us to be in. And even as a corporate culture, we're not coming here to be entertained. This is more like an outpost to get equipped to go out and then do the business of ministry. That's what church should be like. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. Then Israel served as a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep by a prophet. The Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Israel or Jacob worked as a, like a slave to obtain Rachel's hand. But he was deceived by her father and ended up working 14 years instead of the initially promised seven years. You remember the story. And Jacob had confidence that his father-in-law would keep his promise. And in the same way, the Israelites had confidence in Egypt's uh, keeping of a promise to let them go. But Pharaoh kept refusing, enslaved them. They worked endless hours. And what was the result of this? The point in making this is that look at these things that didn't work out the way you wanted, but God was still there in all of that. God still delivered Jacob from Laban, his father-in-law, just as he would later deliver Israel from the Egyptians. In fact, God used supernatural manifestation of the plagues to free Israel. In fact, there's an interesting wordplay in verse 12 and 13. Jacob guarded sheep to get a wife in verse 12, and then the Exodus God guarded Israel through his prophet in verse 13. Guarded is the same Hebrew word in both verses, and it means to watch, to preserve. Jacob connived. Israel disobeyed. But catch this, God is still watching. God is still preserving. God's Covenant-keeping with Israel in the Abrahamic covenant was not based on Israel's obedience, but God's willingness and ability to keep his word. The Mosaic covenant was based on Israel's obedience, and they were condemned to death because of it. Certainly, Israel was spared the full judgment of God for their disobedience in building and worshiping a golden calf idol. Again, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. We still see God's discipline of Israel in the Old Testament and believers in the New Testament for their sin, but he still keeps his promise of the covenant. Ephraim was given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Remember, Ephraim is another name for Israel. The reference to bitter provocation certainly includes idolatry. It means God is provoked to anger. And when it says that he would leave the blood guilt on Israel and repay them, for their disgraceful deeds, he means there's going to be consequences to Israel's sin. He's not just going to gloss over it. 
God is not going to let Israel just go on and on sinning without addressing it, without it costing them. He's exasperated by their constant attachment to idols. God's not giving up on his claim that they are his, but he recognizes they're trying to set aside his dominion. And there are going to be consequences. Hebrews 12 tells us this. Because we're children of God, we're going to be disciplined. People think, because I think God's going to keep his promise, I think you can get away with sin. Well, I never said that. And most people I know who talk about this never say that. But that's what people assume, and that's not what the Bible says. There are consequences to our sin, but God still keeps his covenant. What's so difficult to understand about that? Israel's ingratitude, made evident by its sin, angered God, and it made judgment on this earth and even in rewards in heaven inevitable. So, how has God responded to his people since the Old Testament till now? Has God changed the way he operates? In fact, God has continued pursuing us with the new covenant in Christ. He has changed us from the inside out. I want to pivot now to a New Testament passage and see the same pattern of a covenant-keeping God that's really based on the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant, God making this promise to his people, and now we see it expressed in the work of Christ in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to this. This is absolutely fascinating, glorious, blessed, encouraging. I mean, it's just unbelievable what God is doing for us in this passage. Check this out. Blessed be the name, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God initiates the work of salvation in each believer. It is of his choosing. And he gives us provision to be acceptable for eternity. He gives us provision to be acceptable for eternity. He chose us. He made us righteous because we are in Christ. We are in Christ and must not think of ourselves as any less. Christ in us and we are in Christ. An eagle can think that it is a turkey, but it doesn't change its being. God has made his children with a new self. There are a lot of Christians running around like they're turkeys, and God is saying, no, I've made you a new creature in Christ. There have been many who have believed that they are something other than what they really are. You know, in the last several centuries, there have been over 50 documented cases of feral 
children, children who've been lost in the wild, reared, nurtured, and protected by animals. In 1987, a child was found living with a tribe of monkeys in Uganda. That's what I told our kids a couple times. We found you amongst some monkeys in Uganda. This is obviously the reason you're acting the way you're acting. When taken to an orphanage, this child grunted, squealed, jumped on his hands, ate grass, was fearful of people. Another boy was observed living with a herd of antelope over a 10-year period. Several attempts were made to capture him, and they were futile. Scientists call this imprinting. And see, many Christians have been imprinted from particular church cultures or maybe the way they grew up, that they are at their core bad people with no real chance for joy, nothing special. They see themselves as turkeys while God sees them as holy and blameless in Christ. God initiated the salvation process. God also predetermined for us a loving union with him. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1. Predestination. Boy, let's just talk the rest of the week about that. <laughs> what always strikes me as a little funny is people say, well, I don't believe in predestination. Well, you know, that's really weird because, you know, the, the word is in the Bible. So, you know, whatever you're going to say about it, just cut it out. What, 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 do you, what do you want to do with it? Now, you can try to do that, but it's there. So it means something. So let's just deal with it and say, all right, what does it mean? All right? I don't claim to know every nuance, but it's predetermining, at least includes God, predetermining that we are going to have a loving union with him. It's not God choosing us because he knew in the future we would choose him. Such a notion makes us the initiator of the salvation act. It's not God choosing men for hell. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Whatever it means, it involves us being adopted as sons of God. In verse 4, it says God chose us, after God chooses us, he makes us a son. He chooses us to put us in a position to where we can have this relationship. God didn't say, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to redeem a group of people just so you can be loyal subjects to me. No, he says, I'm going to redeem a group of people so I have a community, a family, an intimate union relationship. And then I'm going to give my children all the rights of being in my family. We're not just friends. We are sons. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The apostle Paul said in Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Abba. You've heard this before. It's a term of endearment. It's like Papa. And he said, that's what I want with you, to have this kind of intimate relationship to where there's this endearment, true love and intimacy where you're calling me daddy. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.4 says, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My friends, not only do we become a new creation, but he gives us a new self under the new covenant. We have taken on a family likeness, the very life of Christ. What a glorious union. Doesn't stop there. Our union with the Father is of his own choosing and plan, according to his purpose and his will. Know this, you are not an illegitimate child of God. You didn't just slip in. You're not orphaned. You're not some unplanned spiritual birth. God chose you. And you are a child of God according to exactly what he wanted, to the purpose of his will. And he is sovereign. He is infinite. He is omniscient. Hold on to your horses. He knew all about your sin. And when he chose you before the foundation of the earth, he knew about every sin you would ever commit. And if you think we can somehow lose what God has promised, somehow lose what we have in Christ, do you really think God didn't know beforehand what we would do? What every sin we would commit? That's foolish. That's dumbing down God. He still chose you. Every aspect of salvation is born out of the purpose and the will and the plan of God that when it is accomplished, it would solely and only be to the praise and the glory of God and not any man. In verses 5 and 9 and 11, salvation is described as his will. In verses 6 and 7, it's ascribed to his grace. In verse 7, to his blood. In verse 4, to his love. In verse 9, to his good intention. In verse 11, to his purpose. And in verses 12 and 14, to the praise of his glory. Salvation is not a result of the will or merit or love of man. Our union is of his choosing. God has saved us in order that he might be glorified. Since our union with him is rooted in God's eternal purpose and grace, he deserves all that glory. You know what that says to us? Our adoption is not fragile. It's not tenuous. 
It is not uncertain. Yet many of us walk around as if at any moment God's just going to pull the rug out from under us. How could you be so stupid? You're an idiot. That's what we think God's thinking. Just not the way he is. He chose us and predestined us for adoption. This is firm, sure, and unshakable. Do we still sin? Yes. Are there consequences to sin? Yes. But he still keeps his covenant. He's faithful when we're faithless. Our union with the Father, if you don't believe this, this is kind of the capstone. Our union with the Father is protected in the Son. Verse 5, has sons through Jesus Christ. In verse 6, again, Ephesians 1, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. We have this union with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And now we are blessed in Christ, who is called the beloved of God. The term beloved was God's special name for his son. This is what he called Jesus at the baptism in Mark 1. This is my beloved son. Well, if we're in Christ, and Christ is beloved, and guess what that makes us? We're hid in Christ, therefore we too are beloved by God. For God so loved the world. Are you in the world? Yes, you are. For God so loved you. Beloved by God. I am beloved by God. Say it, everybody, together. I am beloved by God. Say it again. I am beloved by God. Some of you need to repeat that every day to yourself because you know what? Many of you just think you're a piece of crap. Admit it. That's what many of us think. If you only knew what I did and you've never forgiven yourself, and God says, no, 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 no. I love you. You are, you are beloved. You are special. I died for you. And I'm never going to break this covenant that I have with you. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Listen, our adoption, his choosing of us, is not because we were attractive or cute or worthy. It's based on the free and sovereign grace of God planned before the world and bought for us by the blood of Christ. My friends, what kind of Christian life do we live if we think God is going to pull the rug out from under us? If we're in constant fear of losing the relationship. When you fear another human being, does that draw you close to that human being? I mean fear in the worst kind. I know the Bible says we're to fear God and we're to have respect for him. It's not this kind of fear I'm talking about. When you're fearful of another human being, do you want to draw close to them or avoid them? We avoid them, right? We're not going to draw near. If you truly understood how much God loves you, accepts you, that you are hidden in Christ, how's that going to influence you? Now, you know, I've spent over 30 years here being the pastor of this church. I've shared with you multiple stories and failures of my life. You know, marriage difficulties, family difficulties, stupid decisions I make, messy life, exhibit A right here, okay? And yet, 
I'd feel like giving up if I didn't know this one truth, that I'm still loved by God, that he's never going to leave me. That's what I hang my hat on. It's not based on, you know, I've done pretty good. I'm pretty hot stuff. No, I'm really not. But he loves me. If that doesn't enter your heart of hearts, you need to just sit and meditate and do something. Jog for two days straight until you get it. Do something. You know what comes of that? When I understand that it's that kind of relationship that's rock solid, service, obedience, sacrifice, man, I will gladly give that. It's not a, not a notion that I find difficult because I give it out of love for the Father. You know, you know what's to be a great sign of this to the world? Marriage. Marriage is to be a sign of this covenant. That no matter what, I'm going to stay with this partner. That no matter what, I'm going to continue to have this intimacy physically, spiritually, emotionally. I'm going to have this safety with this other person. Because I have this with God, I'm going to give this to this other person. And then we can enjoy a relationship together. And it's to be a picture of how God loves his people. Now, no marriage is perfect. I'm not saying that. But we're saying, I'm not talking about or even entertaining leaving because I've got this as a factor in my life. God's love. Have we been disappointed? Of course. Is there sin? Yes. But when, when people see, you know what, there's still a love there and a care and a, and, a, and a commitment to not just love this person, but to enter into intimacy. It's like, wow, you know, God treats us this way. It's the way it should be. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Act like the cherished kids you are with God. Yeah, we sin. And it's true, God knows about our sin. But God dramatically changed the whole scenario with Jesus Christ. See, with Christ... No matter what problems I have at home, I know that the foundation, the rock of my life will never change. I could lose my job. The church could blow up. You know, lose our home. The worst kind of things I can imagine happening in life. Lose a child. But I still have this relationship with Christ. Now, I don't hope for any of that to happen. But it keeps me in the game. It keeps me always hopeful, always willing to give, always willing to sacrifice and to love because I have this. If I am only willing to love 
because of what people have done for me, then that motivation's gonna stop real quick, right? Because there's always gonna be disappointment. But I, when I know that God has called me to live a life of love and to give, even when I don't feel like it, that's a whole other thing. That's, that's supernatural. But that's something God can do with each of us.